The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new. Welcome to IBC. My name's Craig. I'm so glad that you've joined us this morning. Those of you that showed up here in the cold weather in the room, thanks for showing up. Those of you watching online, thanks for tuning in. This is my first time to speak on the stage now that it's been updated and elevated and it's the first time anybody's using this new sound system, and so all of that is very exciting and a little bit terrifying at the same time, not to mention that my mother-in-law's in the room over here, so uh, all of that is a little bit scary. I'm a little afraid of heights up here. I feel like I'm right in y'all's lap. If I fall off the stage, you're going to need to just catch me, somebody. If I get disoriented uh, or discombobulated, just show me a little bit of grace um, and it's the first month still of this new year, 2024. This is the time of year where we think about our goals for this coming year, where we think about what we want to accomplish. And I couldn't be more excited that as a church, we are focusing in this year on reaching our diverse community with the life-saving, grace-giving message of Jesus Christ, one life at a time. Because we all want to be used by God, don't we? We all want to make a difference in this world. But uh, you know, none of us want to be time wasters or space takers or, or, you know, binge watchers or just book readers. We want to be difference makers. But it's so easy with life and how you get in the rut of life to just let the years go by. And as each year passes, uh, I think the question just gets louder and louder. Am I making a difference in this world? In today's vernacular, I think we would say that we want to be influencers because we follow the greatest influencer of all time, Jesus Christ, regardless of what you think about him and who he was, you cannot deny the impact that he had on this world. Every time you write down the year this year, 2024, you are being reminded of how long it's been since he walked on this planet. And yet, he didn't use any of the common you know, thought or best practices around how to influence the world. He was a carpenter from a know-nothing place, uh, a town, didn't have much resources, never traveled far from his home, never had a college degree, didn't have any uh, you know, uh, uh, titles or positions that would stand out on a resume. And yet today, over one-third of the world identify as his followers. How did he do that? Well, as Barry has said through this series, this movement began, it continues through the centuries, and it moves forward one life at a time. And so we're looking at his interactions with individual people and trying to learn about how we can have an impact on our world one life at a time. So before we dive in, let's open up in prayer. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Uh, thank you for your spirit here in this room. We invite you into our hearts this morning. We want to hear from you. We want you to change us, and we want you to send us out, God, and use us for your glory and for the honor of your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I don't know what January looks like around your house, but around our house, January is a time of purging. 
My wife loves January because she loves to clean out closets. She loves to clean out the pantry and get rid of all the good foods that we got to eat over the holidays and just leave us with the food nobody wanted, you know, the healthy stuff. She loves to get rid of stuff we don't use anymore, stuff that's broken, stuff that we don't want anymore. And she always gives me the same reason for it. She says, Craig, we don't want our kids to have to go through this when we're gone one day. And I'm like, why not? And you know, make them, make them pay for their inheritance. We're not just giving this to them. Uh, but, but it can be a time of tension around our house because we're so different on this issue. I mean, for Kathy, if she had her way, the only thing in our garage would be our two cars. There would be no, bo- don't yay that. There would be no boxes, no tools, no lawn equipment. None of that would get to go in the garage. If it were up to Kathy, half our furniture would be sent out to the curb because it's worn or it's torn or it's a little damaged or it's dangerous to use now or, you know, whatever. She wants to get rid of it. If it were up to Kathy, I think I would have four shirts and two pair of pants in my closet because she always walks in and says, Craig, why do you have all these clothes? You just put in here what you actually wear. And, and to be fair, it's four shirts and two pair of pants that I actually <laughs> wear. And I found out she purges my closet when I'm not around. I didn't know this until I was with a friend several years back with, with Dwight. And I said, hey, Dwight, I really like that shirt. Uh, I think I have one like it. It's really comfortable. And he said, Craig, this is your shirt. Did, did Kathy not tell you that she gave this to me? Because, see, if it were up to me, I, I would be the poster child for the TV show Hoarders. I keep everything. I, I'm pretty sure we have some computers in our garage right now that still run on just MS-DOS. And, and I keep every box of, you know, that technology comes in just in case. You know, what if we have to ship it back? What if we need to get it repaired? And so those boxes are all there long after we're, you know, no longer using the technology anymore. I still have the boxes. And I even still have the technology. In my drawer right now, I pulled this out to show y'all. This is a Samsung flip phone from 2001. I've had this for 22 years. And Kathy says, why do you keep that? And I said, I don't know, you know, what if we need a part from it? Or what if aliens come and this is the only phone that still is working and we might need this. And, and it's kind of retro and cool. It might be worth some money now. So please, please don't throw this away. But the battle continues in our house, but you know what, we'll get through it. Uh, February is around the corner. Um, but on a bigger scale, Sociologists have recognized a phenomenon, a shift in our culture over the past 40 or 50 years that that back then, uh, when I was a kid, uh, people used Dixie cups in their bathroom. You remember those little paper cups, but other than the little Dixie cups you might have in your bathroom, people typically didn't use a lot of paper plates or or plastic cups or, or plastic silverware. They used real dishes. And when you were finished, you washed the dishes and you used them again the next day. And if a dish broke, you might actually glue that dish back together and use it again. Uh, your, your sodas, you didn't buy in plastic bottles. They came in glass bottles. You remember this? You would take them back to the grocery store and they'd give you a cent or two for each bottle so that they could reuse them. Water didn't come in plastic bottles. Water came from the faucet. And if a, uh, something broke down in your house, like an appliance, you would call someone to come fix it. If your dryer broke down, you'd call the Sears repairman, or we would anyway, to fix it. Um, If, uh, I'm trying to think of other things that might break down in your house. Your TV, if your TV broke down, we would load it up in our car and we would take it to a TV repairman. I don't think there's even such thing as a TV repairman anymore because times have changed. Today, when things break, what do we do? We throw them out. 
We go get something new. We don't really value repairing and fixing and making things new again in our culture. We're living in what many experts have termed a throwaway culture. And there are debates going on around all the time about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing and how it affects our planet. But ultimately, that debate is just about stuff. It's about things. The problem comes when a society begins to think about its people that way. When broken people become throwaway people. Pope Francis said this recently. He said, our throwaway culture uses people only so long as they are useful. After which the person is only a bother to society. Those most affected by this selfish mindset are unborn children, the elderly, the needy, and the disadvantaged. And then he concluded with this, people are never to be thrown out, never. Every person is a sacred and unique gift, no matter what their age or condition is. And I think he's right. Now, as we think about impacting people one life at a time, we have to recognize that the people that we're trying to reach are inevitably going to be broken people. And as we look at our story today, as we see Jesus's interaction with a woman named Mary Magdalene, I think he's going to invite us to begin to see people through a different lens, to see people the way that he sees people people that have potential for advancing his kingdom. I think when Jesus looks at broken, he sees beautiful. He sees potential. He sees great value. And by the way, here's the dirty little secret. We're all broken. We're all broken. Brene Brown in her famous TED Talk on vulnerability said it this way. He said, she said, most of us are just one paycheck, one divorce, one drug addicted kid, one mental health diagnosis, one serious illness, one sexual assault, one drinking binge, one night of unprotected sex, or one affair from being those people, the ones we don't trust, the ones we pity, the ones we don't let our children play with, the ones that, that we think bad things happen to, the ones that we don't want living next door. We are those people. And she's right. Look around. Everyone in here is broken. There are, there's not one person in this room who's put together. Just turn to your neighbor and say, I'm broken. Come on, loud and proud. I am broken. We are those people. We are the people who ignore the hurts of others as long as our needs are getting taken care of. We're the people who yell at each other in the car on the way to church and then step out of the car and smile and act like everything's fine. We're the people who will go deep into debt just to keep up appearances. We're the people who look down on other people who don't look like us or talk like us or come from the places that we came from or vote like us. We're the people who work 50 plus hours a week trying to prove our worth and we spend countless hours on social media trying to convince other people that our life is better than it actually is. We are those people. We are all broken people. But what we'll see today is it only takes one encounter with Jesus to change all that. That Jesus wants to set you free from the sin and the shame and the guilt and the disappointment that this life throws at us. I know because he's done it for me. And it's the testimony of so many of you here in this room. And here's the cool part. Once he sets you free, he actually wants to use you to help go set other people free, one life at a time. And so here's my main point for today. If you don't hear anything else, please hear this, that God loves using the most unexpected people to do his most extraordinary work. 
God loves using the most unexpected people to do his most extraordinary work. And my guess is most of us feel like I'd be the last person that God would ever want to use to do anything extraordinary through. And the good news is that's exactly the heart posture that he's looking for. So enter Mary Magdalene. We're first introduced to her in Luke chapter eight, beginning in verse one, it says this. After this, Jesus traveled around from town to town and village, one village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven spirits had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So Jesus is out teaching. He's got the 12 with him, but he has this group of women also following him and supporting him. I think sometimes we forget the important role that women played in the ministry of Jesus. And so John here points out three of them. And the first one he talks about is this woman named Mary Magdalene. And then he adds this tagline, out of whom seven demons have come. Now, if I'm Mary, I'm gonna pull John aside and say, John, really? This is going down for all of eternity and you had to include that. You couldn't have said Mary, the one who supported Jesus's ministry, Mary, the generous one, or how about just say Mary, John. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit prompted John to include that tagline, out of whom seven demons had come. And by the way, Magdalene is not her last name. That just lets us know where she came from. She came from an area called Magdala, which was a resort-type city along the western coast of uh, the Sea of Galilee. Think um, uh, Las Vegas by the sea. There, it had a lot of luxury, but there was a lot of corruption. There was a lot of um, immorality. And because of that, throughout the history of the church, it's often been implied that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. But there's nothing in scripture to imply that at all. But what we do know about her is that she came from a very troubled, broken background. Her life would have been a wreck. She was one of those people. You know, Barry talked last week about the demoniac and, and Mary was also a demoniac. Scripture says she had seven demons and we don't know if that's the actual number or oftentimes in scripture, seven just means complete. So what we can know for sure is that she was a completely um, tormented and troubled soul. And then we, get, uh, we can get more uh, you know, thoughts about what her life might have, have looked at from the description Barry gave us last week. She probably would have been out of her mind for reasons that were out of control. She would have been an outcast probably would have been physical and psychological trauma for her. She would have lost her self-control, her dignity, her behavior would have been embarrassing and shameful, degrading and humiliating. She likely wouldn't have seen any way out of her life. She would have been considered a throwaway. And it reminds me of a young man who was born in Antioch, Tennessee, just back in 1984, whose name is Jason DeFord. His dad was a meat salesman, but eventually became a bookie. And his mom was a drug addict. And at the age of 14, he entered into the federal detention uh, system and for the next 10 years went in and out of that system. Um, and he says this, this was a time in my life where I truly thought that was it. My life was over. And then one day the prison guard came into his cell and said, hey, DeFord, you had a kid today. And he said that news changed his whole perspective on his life. And he began writing his thoughts down and putting it to music. And so fast forward uh, several years and then you get to 2020 in the midst of the pandemic, he releases on YouTube 
one of the songs that he's written, an acoustical version of the, just the inner turmoil that he felt. And apparently it resonated with a lot of people because it went viral and it's now been viewed by more than 200 million people. He, uh, I'm talking about the artist who's known as Jelly Roll. Uh, he just won New Country Music Artist of the Year. He's up for two Grammys next month. But I want you to listen to the words of this song. He says, somebody save me. Save me from myself. I have spent so long living in hell. They say my lifestyle is bad for my health. It's the only thing that seems to help. All this drinking and smoking is hopeless, but I feel like it's all that I need. Something inside of me is broken. I hold on to anything that sets me free. I'm a lost cause. Baby, don't waste your time on me. I am so damaged beyond repair. Life has shattered my hopes and my dreams. And my guess is Mary could relate to those words. And maybe you can too. She was a, a prisoner of her demons, probably like many face today. And sometimes it can be a product of our own mistakes and sin. And sometimes it's a product of what's been done to us. But either way, I think most of us know it, people in that situation, it can feel hopeless. It can make us feel like we are damaged beyond repair. But for Mary, that was not the end of her story. By the sheer mercy and grace of God, we don't know how, when, or where, but Jesus stepped into her life and he changed everything for her. He called out the seven demons and he took the broken pieces of her life and he put them back together. And from that moment on, she devoted her life to following Jesus wherever he went. She used her resources to fund his ministry. She's mentioned over 14 times in the gospel. That's more than most of the apostles are mentioned. And I would argue that she was the most faithful of all of his disciples. Because Jesus sat around a table with his 12 disciples and he said, every one of you is gonna desert me. And they did, but not Mary. She was with him as he taught from town to town, as we just read. She follows him, she's there. She follows him on his final journey into Jerusalem. She's there that last week of his life. She follows him to the mount where he is on the cross, where he is ultimately crucified, where the nails are put into his hands and his feet. She is still there. Not the 12, but Mary is there. She's there and to hear him say, it is finished. She's there to see him breathe his last breath. Just her, his mother, the other Mary, and John. Four. There are four people there to support him as he breathes his last breath. Where are all the other people? Where are the people that he did miracles for? Where are the people who have been healed because of him? Where are the 5,000 that he fed? They're not there. There's no free meal anymore. Where are the people that can see now? Where are the people that can hear now? Where are the people that can walk now? Did they use their healing to walk towards the cross? No. They used it to run away, but not Mary. Mary was right there. She was all in because Jesus has now become her entire life, which by the way, is the only reasonable response when you truly understand what Jesus has done for you. Everyone else runs scared, but not Mary. And why is that? I don't know for sure, but I'm just thinking after what she's been through in her life, there probably wasn't much that Mary was afraid of. When you've wrestled with demons for the first years of your life, my guess is you could look into the eyes of any Roman soldier and say, boy, you better back off. You don't wanna mess with me. 
right? She had, she had experienced God's perfect love in her life. And we know scripture says perfect love casts out fear. And so even in death, she stays. She's there as Joseph and Nicodemus take Jesus's body down off the cross. She's there as they transport it to prepare it for burial. She's there as they put it in the tomb. She's there when the stone is rolled in front of it. And then comes Easter morning, Sunday morning. And guess who's on her way to the tomb? Many scholars say it this way, that she was the last one at the cross and she was the first one at the tomb. And Mark says it this way in his uh, writings. He says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus's body. And if you know the story, she gets there and the stone's been rolled away and Jesus's body is gone. And then John writes, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb and she saw two angels seated where Jesus's body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. And at this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. She thought it was the gardener. And so she says to him, I need you to tell me where they took Jesus' body so that I can go and get it. And then Jesus says to her, Mary. And she turns towards him and she cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. The moment she heard him say her name, she realized it's Jesus because she had heard him say it so many times before. Mary was the first person to see Jesus after his resurrection. And for one brief shining moment, she was the whole church. She was the only missionary. She was the only evangelist. She was the only one who knew the truth of what had happened. And so she runs and tells the other disciples. Now think about that. Of all the people that God could have chosen to witness his resurrection, Peter, who was instrumental in building the church, John, his beloved disciple, Andrew, James, none of them. He chooses Mary Magdalene the most unexpected human being that he could have chosen. Mary, who was on the outside of every inside-outside category that there was in that day. She was a woman, not a man. She was poor, not middle class. And she had a troubled past at best. Why would Jesus choose Mary as his first evangelist? Women weren't even allowed back then to testify in a court of law because they couldn't be trusted. And yet God trusts her to testify to the greatest event in world history. Why would he do that? Because this is the gospel. The gospel is that God's salvation does not come on the basis of our merit. Doesn't come on the basis of our pedigree. Doesn't come on the basis of race or class or gender pecking order. The gospel is not that the good are in and the bad are out. The gospel is that the humble are in. And the proud are out. God's not waiting for you to bring him his perf- your perfect record. He wants to give you his perfect record. God chose Mary because that is his way. He loves using the most unexpected, broken, messed up, jacked up people he can use to do the most extraordinary things. It's the way he's always worked. You look at the Old Testament. Who did he choose when he brought his original word to this world. Did he take the great nations of the time, the Assyrians, the Romans, the Egyptians? No. He goes to this little know-nothing nation called Israel. 
When it's time to defeat Goliath, who does he choose? A little boy named David. He takes a kid named Midian to help overtake the Midianites. He takes a prostitute named Rahab to help them conquer the land of Canaan. And the people that he uses are the people who lean into him with a humble spirit and a heart towards God, those who are seeking after him. See, I think a good reason that Mary may have been the one chosen for this is because Mary was the one who was there. She was there for him. She was pursuing him. She was looking for him. I heard a preacher say one time, we get about as much of God as we want. And Mary wanted God desperately with everything that she had. And really, who better to reveal his resurrection to than the woman who knew what it was like to be raised from the dead? She knew what it was like to be dead, to feel like her life didn't matter, to feel like she was damaged beyond repair, and then to be brought back to life? If there's anyone who's gonna be a powerful witness to this new life, it would be this Mary who experienced her own resurrection. And it's interesting, if you look at how Mark gives this account, he says this in chapter 16, he says, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. There's that tagline again. Why? This is the end of her story. This is years now. Why are you still using this tagline, Mark, about Mary? Because, you know, I, I don't know if I, I feel like maybe I was reading it wrong because I read that and that feels bad to me. Why do we keep bringing this up? Hasn't she proved herself by now? Why is this still here in this story? I think of it as like something that to be ashamed of. Like when people back then were talking about the Marys, maybe this was a way to distinguish the good Marys from the bad Marys, right? Are you talking about Mary, mother of Jesus, Mary, sister of Lazarus, or are we talking about Mary, seven demon Mary? Is that the Mary we're talking about? But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, that doesn't sound like the character of our God. So why is this still here? And I wonder if it's not so much about her past or her reputation anymore. Now it's become about her testimony. Maybe this tagline isn't included here to embarrass her, but it's included to celebrate her, to celebrate her freedom. I've always kind of pictured her sheepishly having to stand over to the side and say, you know, I'm Mary, the seven demon Mary. But, but what if this wasn't to shame her? What if this is to celebrate her? What if she's the one going around loud and proud saying, I'm Mary Magdalene. I'm the one that seven demons came out of. Can you believe what Jesus did for me? He set me free. Perhaps some of us need to stop allowing our pain and our trauma and our, and our mistakes to be a reputation that we're ashamed of and start allowing it to be the testimony to God's goodness in our life. To say, this is who I was, but Jesus has set me free. I'm free. Because that's what people who have been set free do. They go tell other people to set them free. And it's exactly what Mary did. John says it this way. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she tells them that he, what he had said, that he had said these things to her. Mary immediately takes the good news and wants to go share it with the people that she cares most about so that they can experience it as well. When are we gonna get that? Even Jelly Roll gets this. He would be the first to admit today that he's still a work in progress. He is so rough around the edges and he doesn't have it all together. 
And he's still haunted by his past, he says. For the longest time, he felt like there was no redemption, that his demons were too deep and too dark to ever let go of. But he knows he's different today, like a little light has come through. And his mission now, because he knows he's been set free, is to try to go and set other kids that were like him free. When he was asked about the change in his life, he says this, it just shows what God can do, what you can't. It shows how much change can happen in your life. The windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror for a reason because what's in front of us is so much more important than what's behind us. And so this last year, he performed to a sold out crowd at his hometown arena, Bridgetone Arena there in Nashville. And he used the proceeds from his concert to send to area youth programs. And at the same juvenile detention center where he was incarcerated, he has now funded a music studio there so that those kids have a positive outlet to express themselves. He went and visited almost 40 juvenile detention prison systems over this past year just to offer some hope and some encouragement. But he says it's bigger than that. He's got a 10-year plan where he wants to use his success and his fame to open group homes, after-school programs, and community centers. He even went this month and spoke before Congress about the fentanyl problem in our nation. He said, I just wanna remind these kids that they are loved and that change is possible. And I love the way he put it in his documentary about his life on Hulu. He says, you're supposed to go home and give back. That's the rule. That's what you do. That's the golden rule. And juvenile is where it all started for me. And then listen to this. I don't think any one person has the ability to fix the world. But I think if a bunch of people do a little bit, it gets a little bit better. And I think Jesus would agree with that. I think it's partly why he birthed his church. And now he invites us as his church to join him into making this world a little bit better, one life at a time, understanding that there's no throwaway people. Every life matters. God wants every life set free. And so he puts people in your path every day that he wants you to see. And he wants them to experience the freedom that you've experienced. And I know some of you want to argue, God, I can't do it. You got to find, you want to pull the Moses card, right? God, I don't speak clearly. You got to find somebody else to do it. I don't have enough. I don't know enough. I've got this past that I'm dealing with. And I think God leans in and says, shh, 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 shh. You don't think I know that? I know everything about you. I know what you've been through. I know what you've done. And it's precisely why I want to use you. Why? Because God delights in using the most unexpected, messed up, broken, jacked up people to do his extraordinary work because then he gets the credit. He gets the glory. Hear me. Nothing you have done has undone what God can do through you. Your mistakes, your past, your mess, it's your testimony to the power and the goodness of our God. So get out there and set some people free. Share it with other people. Who in your life needs to be set free? Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new.